Hello, this is Kalia in 2020. What you are about to hear is the remastered version of the episode that you clicked on. Why? Well, it turns out that when I started this podcast, I got some incorrect information regarding copyright law and fair use policy. After nearly two years of making content, this oversight was brought to my attention. There was mild panic, lots of guilt, and then a few fervent nights doing research. It seems we might exist in this gray, nebulous area of fair use for critique and commentary, and thus our use of a teeny tiny bit of the music from the soundtracks of the movies that we are critiquing and commenting on might be allowable. But then again, it might not. So a few things. One, I don't want to be a jerk, even accidentally. Two, I think it's important to acknowledge when you mess up. But three, and this is key, I think acknowledging your mess up isn't enough. You have to rectify the situation if possible. And guess what? It's totally possible to go back into these old episodes and clip out the maybe legal, maybe just slightly crappy bit of audio and replace it with a bit of music created just for me by the same composer and performer who made us our theme music, which is what I'm going to do. And since I can't help but tinker just a smidge, I might clean up a teeny tiny bit of audio noise while I'm in there. I mean, I've learned a lot over the last two years, and who knows, you might be stumbling upon this podcast feed years from now. So why should your present day ears be punished? Because way back in time, I hadn't yet found the noise reduction button. Anyway, without further ado, here's the podcast you came here for. Just slightly better. Thanks for listening. I'm actually really excited. Yeah, this is a good one. Okay, go ahead. Hello, and welcome to Pages and Popcorn Podcast. The podcast where two book nerds talk about movies that were based on books, as well as the original source material. We will answer questions like, how are these two interpretations the same? How are they different? And are they even worth your time? But before we discuss today's book and movie combo, we want to remind you to follow us on Facebook and Twitter at Pages and Popcorn Podcast. We also want to remind you that you are welcome to email us at pagesandpopcornpodcast at gmail.com. You can listen to our shows at SoundCloud and on iTunes, and rating and reviewing us on either or both of those platforms is greatly appreciated. You can also listen to us directly on our website, which is, you guessed it, pagesandpopcornpodcast.com. Today we will be discussing the book Nothing Lasts Forever, which was the source material for the holiday classic Die Hard. It's the Pages of Popcorns Podcast. Jennifer and Kelia will edify you. It's the Pages of Popcorns Podcast. Jennifer and Kelia are gonna talk, so you better damn well listen. This is indeed a Christmas movie, but before we talk about the movie, we're going to talk about the book. We're going to do recaps now instead of just relying on the IMDb and the Amazon blurb. So here is the recap for the book. Nothing lasts forever. Joe Leland, retired cop and World War II pilot, is on his way to the airport to go see his estranged daughter in California for Christmas when his cab becomes involved with a bit of a road rage situation involving a station wagon driver. This results in Joe pulling his gun a portent of things to come. On the plane, he flirts with Kathy, a flight attendant, and we learn about his traumatic and violent past, including helping to catch killers, catching the wrong killer, being a soldier, an alcoholic, and the dissolvement of his marriage. At the party, Joe meets Ellis, who's a slimy asshole, Rivers, who's a Texas asshole, and is reunited with his daughter, Stephanie, who are all celebrating the deal to build a bridge in Chile. He notes the use of cocaine. His grandchildren are also at this party. He gets barefoot to relax, and the building is taken over by terrorists. Or are they thieves? Flashback time, we learn about how the old guard is moving forward towards zero tolerance for violence in any way, shape, or form as a way of dealing with threats from terrorists. But Joe, our hero, is hesitant. For all of his gun brandishing before, he seems to not like the macho violent behavior. He also recognizes one of the terrorists, Little Tony, or Gruber, as a German terrorist with a penchant for killing. Hostages are taken, Joe does recon, decides to stay, and mess up their plans. Rivers is killed in cold blood. Joe makes a signal and sets up traps. Joe kills his first gang member. 
He breaks the kid's neck. It is brutal, and Joe feels it. It bothers him. He has to psych himself up to do it, and it is really, really shakes him. He alerts the gang to his presence. The note of, now we have a gun, is a gamut. He listens to the men while riding in the elevator. He feels trapped and helpless, and now he wants to kill them. He gets angry. Joe and Tony talk on the radio, and we get more background on Joe's life and the history of putting his job first, etc. Trapped in the vents, he climbs around and eventually gets to another gang member, kills him, dumps him off the rope as a way of alerting and getting attention. Joe vomits after this killing. Next to die is a girl. He doesn't have time to be sick, but this death wears on him as well. He finds the safe, steals the detonators, more fodder for the thief versus terrorist hypothesis. The signal has been received. Glass is on the stairway. Now Joe is injured. He kills another girl, then shoots a guy right out of the window. The killing is getting easier for Joe. He deals with his feet, and now he's getting even more angry. Cops join the radio fun. Al, who is a, quote, young black voice with no trace of the ghetto. The police arrive downstairs. There's a chair bomb in the elevator. The d- building is now damaged. Now we get to Dwayne Robinson, the bureaucratic cop who doesn't care about the little people because he is the system. Ellis is on the radio. Ellis is killed. They want the detonators. Most violent fight to the death with another girl on the roof. There's punching and biting and then shooting her in the eye. And then he faints. He's injured because she shot him in the leg. He blacked out, but now he can see that there's the continued escalation of the violence. The cops are back on his side. Sort of. He's trapped on the roof. He talks to Al and then to Kathy. Remember Kathy? Yep, there's Kathy. Helicopters are coming. The gang is coming at dawn. Joe knows the gang will get to the helicopters. The cops won't listen. Joe does the fire hose thing to get off the roof. He's terrified of this. His body is hurting. He's so scared. He's very sympathetic. He plans. He checks his math. He worries. He waits for the last possible second after providing cover for the helicopters as best he can. But it's a moot point and all the helicopters go up in flames. Taco Bell is introduced. He is a CB radio guy. He's helping Joe, giving him actual info because the cops don't want him to have all the actual info because Joe is fighting the system. After he lands from his horrible fear fueled jump, he uh, re-kills Rivers, who was already dead. Then he sends out a note that he's still alive. He talks to Kathy on the TV and the radio. He tries to use his tools to do a gambit, but the cops won't play along. More cat and mouse stuff with the gang members. Now they know who Stephanie is. They use her as bait while he frees the rest of the hostages. Many are hurt. Few are killed in this assault. Radio time for Joe and Tony slash Gruber. Lots of exposition about the why of the whole thing. It's an arms race. There's corruption. Stephanie's company is funneling money and guns into Chile. The bridge is just a pretense. Tony wants to redistribute the wealth to the people. So now the public has heard that there's going to be a windfall. Literally six million dollars coming down. The crowds are amassing. Joe doesn't buy the whole Robin Hood thing. He tapes the gun to himself and goes to meet Tony. There's a shootout with Tony. Stephanie is killed. Out the window, both she and Gruber go. Joe throws the money out the window and then goes to the safe and kills the bitch gang member. Very cool. Very calculating. Very unnecessary. And again, he uses the word bitch. Joe has lost a bit of his humanity. He goes down and out of the building. No one takes his warning about Carl, the last gang member seriously, except Al. Carl attacks and kills medical personnel and reporters before Al gets him. In his own moment of detachment, he becomes someone else for the violence and then is quick back to being just Al afterwards. It is creepy as fuck. The end. Very well done synopsis. Thank you. Thank you. And now for the movie. And now for the movie. And then we'll talk about all these themes. Okay. The movie. Oh, I should say, the book was published in 1979. And we will talk about how its place in time is very relevant to Mm -hmm. everything. But um, the movie, Die Hard, 1988. Recap. John McClane is on a plane. We get character development right away that tells us that he is both a ladies' man and a cop, and also a tough guy. Nakatomi Holiday Party is celebrating a year of success, and we meet Holly, John's soon-to-be ex-wife and a career woman who's using her maiden name. Argyle is the black limo driver. John is the everyman who rides in the front. There's more character development about the divorce, but not about the divorce, his career, identity as a cop, lack of faith in Holly. John finds the party. He's a little homophobic. He's a little anti-California. More character development because he's New York, not California. He meets Ellis and his cocaine. Holly is tough as nails with her new Rolex. Holly tries to give an olive branch to Joe, but their gentle reconnecting is broken up by a quibble about marriage and their past past history. She goes on to make a speech, and off comes the shoes, out comes the inner monologue that humanizes John, and then the bad guys show up and take over the building. The bad guys are entertaining to watch. They are well-oiled. They are diverse. There's a black guy at the computers, and they're totally prepared. The killing is very professional, and the building is locked down. John hides and avoids capture. Gruber goes through the hostages and finds Mr. Takani. 
Cogni? I can't. I couldn't quite say it right. Mr. T. Gruber <laughs> goes through the hostages and finds Mr. T. John does recon. Gruber is developed. We have quotes about suits and his classical education. He is very interesting to watch. By the way, it's 640 million barabons in the vault that the terrorists or the thieves want. John watches them kill Mr. Takogi. Takagi. 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 John tries to pull the fire alarm, but the bad guys work over the cops. And now that they know where he was 35 minutes in they know the movie changes now it is the cat and mouse we are full of thriller moments it is intense it is scary he catches one of the guys there's rules for policemen the gang member says so joe doesn't john sorry john doesn't kill him at first he tries to subdue but in the struggle the guy's neck is broken john's reaction is disappointment but then we quickly cut away. John arms up and gets a radio. He now has the, now I have a machine gun, and he adds in the ho 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 and sends the dead guy down the elevator. John is in the elevator taking notes. Get some bad guy side info about the plan. Holly knows that John is affecting things. Ellis is still a dumbass. John's on the roof. There's 30 hostages, not 75. John tries to dis- tries to tall dispatch. It's funny. They don't take him seriously. Do I sound like I'm ordering a pizza? He says. Enter Al. There's a roof firefight and an interior firefight, and now he's in the vents. There's some character development for Carl and the thugs. In the vents, John loses his machine guns. With the lighter, we get the famous quotes. Come to the ghost. Get together. We'll have a few laughs. I know what a TV dinner feels like. We're humanizing John. John is the everyman. John is funny. John is awesome. Al doesn't see anything, because the guard has tricked him. So John breaks a window, kills another in self-defense, and then another through a table with no shrapnel. Okay. To get the cop's attention, he throws the dead body and shoots at the cop car. Welcome to the party, pal! And Al crashes his car. There's a sudden shift to a random media guy. Okay, that's fine. We're back to the radio chat with Gruber and John, and John finds the C4. John smokes and drops pop culture references to prove again that he is the everyman. This is where we get our yippee motherfucker. Media guy has a beef with another media guy, but really nobody cares. Hans Gruber now knows that John has the detonator. Cops are now on the radio chat. Cops arrive downstairs. Dwayne Robinson versus Al. It's the bureaucratic twat versus... The real cop. Holly makes herself known as the leader of hostages. She gets a couch for the pregnant lady. Bathroom breaks. Thornburg is now the name of our weird media guy. He's on TV. Now Argyle wakes up from the limo and is back in play. Cops want to go in because there's no demands. They won't listen to Al. Again, we have this bucking of the system. More building locking down. An hour in, and now we're getting to the third part of the movie. John knows better than the cops outside. Interesting to note, one of the cops says, Ow, when he bumps into a rose bush. Bad guys are still in control. They shoot at the lights. They get the SWAT team. Big RV comes in, but the bad guys have a rocket launcher. Lots of yelling in German. They hit the truck more than once, despite John's pleas. And John is off the bench now. He has his C4. He makes a chair bomb for the elevator shaft. He is pissed. Geronimo, motherfucker. More Hans character development. Dwayne is back to yell at John, and there's some more homophobia. Ellis does coke, goes to talk to Hans, drops a fused racial epitaphs, and offers up John. John calls Hans a shithead. Ellis asks for the detonators, and they kill Ellis. Ellis is dead. Hans lets John hear the people crying, threatens the hostages. Now we have Al versus Robinson downstairs. Upstairs, Hans is playing the terrorist card. He's giving demands. They are total bullshit. The media now has a doctor on. Some other media guy is a dork. He doesn't know where Helsinki is. I don't know why we're watching this. FBI arrives. It's Johnson and Johnson. Okay, they take over. Hans and John meet up. Hans pretends to be a victim. John falls for this for some reason. John gives Bill Clay a gun. But John didn't fall for it. There are no bullets in the gun. The bad guy Calvary shows up and there's a firefight. But now Hans knows about John's bare feet. He tells the bad guys to shoot the glass. Another bad guy is dead. John is pinned down. Gun stops working. Has to run across the glass in his bare feet. He does not say ow. Media guy gets McLean info. Holly can tell that John is still alive because of a bad guy temper tantrum. John is bleeding bad from his feet. John is pulling out glass. He were wincing. We see his pain, but he distracts himself by getting Al's backstory. Al is on the road of redemption due to an accidental shooting of a kid with a fake gun. Al can't draw his gun anymore. He tells the, the John that the FBI is here. The FBI, by the way, have a playbook about terrorists, and they're going to shut down the power. That releases the final lock of the vault! Oh my god, the bad guys knew it all along! Because again, bureaucratic nonsense! They shut down the whole grid. The safe is now open. Everyone celebrates. The FBI thinks that they're winning. The bad guys are getting all the money out of the vault. More of the evil plan is shown. Bad guys are still very much in control. John gives deathbed confession slash apology to Hol- for Holly to Al. He regrets not supporting Holly. Media is at Holly's house. Threatens the maid. 
Fields her. Boo. John is trying to figure out what Hans was doing before they bumped into one another. Find the detonators in the C4. Now he knows more of the plan. There's going to be a double cross. John is captured by Carl, and they fight. Media shows the Holly's kids on the TV, and now Hans knows who Holly is to John. Hans sends all hostages to the roof and will plans to lock them out. Then he grabs Holly. Meanwhile, Carl is kicking John's ass all over the place, and then John gets the upper hand and yells about how his brother squealed when he broke his neck. Ugh. And also why? And also, no, he didn't. FBI knows that they will lose 25% of the hostages. They're okay with that because they are the other bad guys. Hand to hand with Carl gets the upper hand, then John gets the upper hand, then Carl gets a gun, but then John gets the upper hand. Oh my god, it's so confusing. Holly versus Hans. Not a common thief. He's an exceptional thing. That, thank you very much. Alan Rickman is so fucking good. John to Carl, for some reason, I'm gonna kill you, I'm gonna cook you, and I'm gonna eat you. John has gone to a dark place. He hangs Carl by the neck on a chain and leaves him for dead. Now Dwayne gets something that is wrong. Ooh, there's a weird Saigon age stuff between the FBI agents and the helicopter because I guess we want to make it very, very clear that they are the other bad guys, just not the same kind of bad guys. We are only rooting for John. John kills the Asian bad guy, finds the hostages, looks for Holly, finds out that she was been taken to the vault. John has to scare, with a gun, the hostages to get them off the roof because it is wired to explode. The FBI sees this. They think he's the bad guy. Who really is the bad guy? They start shooting at him. He manages to not get shot. Then he does that hose trick with no thought or math or anything, and they decide to blow the roof. Iconic scene. John hangs out onto the side of the building, his bloody feet on the glass and everything, shoots at the window, gets inside, almost gets pulled out by the hose, gets free just in time. The helicopters bite it. Building is definitely fucked. John is now shirtless and wet and armed and running through fire and debris. Argyle wakes up and sees that the bad guys are in an ambulance. John has found Holly. Hans yells in French for some reason. Argyle plows into the fake ambulance and punches out the other bad guy, who was the black tech guy from before. There's a showdown between John and Hans. Holly calls him Jesus. Well, he is kind of a Christ-like figure, all back from the dead, sacrificing, whatever. whatever. Hans tells the plan. He makes John put down his gun. John laughs and laughs, then pulls out the gun that he had on his back, shoots happy trails. Hans takes Holly with him out the window as the money or the paper or something falls all over the place. John unclips Holly's watch and Hans falls to his death in slow John and Holly hug, and he devours her face with his mouth. In the rubble and aftermath, the falling paper looks like snow. The media has returned. John is still walking somehow down all of those steps. They were like on level 33. He makes bromance eyes with Al. They romantic walk to each other and hug. Dwayne is being an asshole. And then as the music swells, Carl's comes back from the dead to try to kill John, and Al finds redemption in violence and shoots him dead and gets his own slow-mo. Another long look passes between John and, and Al. Then Argyle and the limo show up. The media dude shows up. Holly punches him. Forget about the ambulance. John and Holly take off in the limo. Let it snow plays. Roll credits. Wow. Yeah, baby. <laughs> wow. That was very impressive. I tried to just give the bare bones, but I could not keep my commentary out because holy crap, man. <laughs> holy crap. <laughs> Okay. okay. I feel like I need a cigarette. No, just kidding. <laughs> Smoking is bad, y'all. Yeah, I have a candy bar instead. There we go. Or coffee. Coffee is good. I noticed some themes in the book. Mm. Um, well, do you want to discuss what's been changed a little bit? I kind of wanted to talk about the themes okay. and then kind of talk about the important changes and how those relate to those themes. So, but I just did a lot of talking. Do you have any, like, gu- tell me your <laughs> journey toward uh, both the movie and the book. How were you exposed to either Either or both of them. Well, okay. So I watched Die Hard when it came out, as most people did, but I haven't seen it in well over a decade. So it's kind of interesting to revisit it. And, you know, this happens a lot when you revisit stuff from your childhood, is that you will notice things that you did not see before. So there was a lot of that when I watched the film this time. But the way I approached this, I would read part of the book, then I would watch the movie, then I read part of the book, then watch that section of the movie. And so I was going back and forth a lot more. Oh, interesting. Okay. Well, I saw this movie when it came out. Not not when it came out, but when it was relatively new. I watched it on video VHS for the kids listening um, at a sleepover 
over at somebody's house because it was definitely not a movie I was going to be allowed to watch. And we had to hurry up and watch it because my mom was picking me up and taking me to church. So I watched this movie and literally as the credits were rolling, my mom was pulling into the driveway and I was running out and tossing my sleeping bag in the trunk (laughs) of a car and then driving to church. So that was interesting. I sat in church and processed this movie and I was like, it's an action movie and John McClane was awesome and Bruce Willis is so hunky and that was basically all I thought about it and I watched it again occasionally around the Christmas holidays Mm -hmm. because it is a Christmas movie which we'll talk about in a second. Somebody told me that it was based on a book and I really wanted to read the book so pitched it to you we read the book and that was my very first encounter with the book and yeah mine too which is disappointing well it's not like they go through any process to hide it it's in the beginning credits this is based on this book and the book was a bestseller when it came out that's true that's true I just I feel like it is disappointing that the movie has so overshadowed the book but that's I'm getting ahead of myself so it, the book I, there were definitely some important themes themes like the past versus the new world the new world order but the technology and the ideas of what was important and the now over and over and over again it just kept coming up and stuff Um, I also caught the theme that technology was a tool and tools can be used by bad people to do very bad things, that violence is dehumanizing, which is probably one of the biggest changes. So now, I mean, do we want to talk more about themes or do we want to talk about the changes? Do you want to go through your list of themes? Sure. Okay. So again, violence is very dehumanizing. The bad guys are not always easy to find or recognize. Again, with the past, present, future, the ghosts that haunt you, the book really did feel like a retelling of The Christmas Carol. To me, um, we had man versus the system. We had the theme of loneliness. Um, again, going off that past, present, future, the past, Karen is the ex-wife that uh, Joe can't stop thinking about. She's dead. The present is his daughter, Stephanie. The future is Kathy. But even when he calls that moment that they have plastic, maybe the grandkids, uh, Stephanie has kids, is at the very end thinking of his grandkids seems to be what motivates him to keep going and to not die. And then there's kind of like this idea about fate. If he hadn't whipped out his gun in that road rage, he probably, he might have missed his flight and then he wouldn't have been there for all of this. So that was kind of interesting, like the the play of the gun early on. But there was definitely character development for Joe. At the beginning, he was quick to reach for his gun. Towards the end, I, I don't see him that quick to reach for his gun in another altercation. He had kind of learned a little bit about violence, which is interesting considering that he was already um, a former soldier and a cop so he you would think but I think this this violence being so brutal and I think there might be something to say about being a pilot where your uh, marks or your victims are far away versus literally breaking somebody's neck in your hands and having that scene really really spoke to me he had to make the conscious decision that he was going to break this kid's neck then he had to do it and he had to hear it and it and it haunts him and, and so that there was a lot of changes that they made, but that was a big change about John slash Joe's feelings about violence and how it affected him. The plot is relatively the same. It's mm-hmm. got the same major plot points. Uh, the biggest changes are character and tone. Yes, definitely. So And messaging. Yeah, so Joe is much, much older than John. If you do the math, he's almost 70. Yeah, yeah. When I don't know how old Bruce Willis would be. I think he was like late In his 20s? 30s, maybe? Early yeah. 30s? Early yeah. 30s. Coming off of Moonlighting. I mean, they have kids that aren't teeny tiny, so... I would say I think he's supposed to be in his early to mid-30s, maybe. Okay. But yeah, much older. I, I refer to them as Joe Leland, so I refer to the last name. So Leland, most of his time he spent thinking about regret, a lot of guilt. There's lots of digressions into his past. You know, his wife died of cancer. They had divorced. His marriage was a failure. He has a bit of an affair after they're divorced. That doesn't go anywhere because his career was so important to him. He isn't just a cop. He has his own security firm and he's flying first class. He's done extremely well for himself. Mm -hmm. So those are some major changes that happen with that character. But the tone is so different. Uh, The book is much more gray morality. It's much more cynical and I would say quite ugly in a number of spots. Yeah, but but intentionally ugly. Oh, yeah. So one of the big differences is when you look at your villains, these terrorists, they're, they're robbers in the movie. So they're just out there for greed, and it's easy to dislike somebody who's just being greedy. But the terrorists, they have a point. Uh, the company that, that Stephanie works for is 
funneling, basically they're supplying arms to a corrupt fascist government. Right. And for those of you who might not know, Chile is the is the, com- or is the country that they're talking about in the book. And this book was written in 1979. The history of the United States' involvement with Chile and propping up corrupt dictators and sticking our little messy fingers into, quote unquote, the democracy it's a very long and torrid history, but the U.S. and the CIA are definitely not blameless at all in this. And it is, it's, the Wikipedia article is fascinating. I'm going to link it um, on our blog at pagesandpopcornpodcast.com so that you can read it because it is just really interesting, but it makes sense that that was the the impetus here or the And there's actually quite a few very interesting plays and novels that have come out of Chile during this time because it was such a horrific issue in history. Right. And, And even that as the background you have the idea of the system slash the government meddling, but also not putting the benefit of the, the everyman first. It's it's the corporations yeah. that are, are getting their way. And it's all about the making the money and the greed and yada, 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 in the same way where we have our everyman, Joe Leland, who is fighting the terrorists, who's fighting the corporations, who's fighting for goodness, basically, and to protect people. But not quite, because what these terrorists are doing is fighting against this corporation. Right. And so he's sort of messing that up. So is he really the good guy? And not only that, there is kind of a question that if he did nothing, nobody would have been killed. Right. Exactly. Exactly. And he, he he tosses the money at the end. You know, I feel like he kind of sympathized with them. He understood. He he was sad about his daughter's death, of course. And it was it's heartbreaking when that happens. But he kind of has a couple of moments earlier on where he's like, yeah, she made herself this life and she's making bad choices. And God, I really failed as a father because to raise this this person who is who takes part in such things, you know, I will say he he has some lines where he's like so judgy McJudgy. Oh, my God. So judgy. So he's like he hugs his daughter when he first sees her. He's, yes. He's she's 10 pounds heavier than she should be. Yes. He's like, Jesus, dude. <laughs> Yeah. Stop body policing her. And he's the cocaine keeps getting mentioned and mentioned and mentioned. It's like, oh, they're doing cocaine. Oh, my God, she's on cocaine. Well, um, and she makes $40,000 a year and is living it. Oh, my God, she's spending all her money. Well, I did some calculations. Okay, $40,000 in 1979, in other words, is equivalent to the purchasing power of $139,000 in 2018. We're recording this. So basically $140,000. Now, that's decent money, mm. but that's not millions. Do you know what I mean? And and I, I just, I found that was really interesting because it sounded like she had this such a lavish lifestyle and it, it's lavish, but it's not. Well, you also have to think that not everything was expensive then. Well, that's, that's true. Yeah. So property values have, you know, more than tripled. Yeah. Fair enough. And this is in LA again, they kept that the same. Yeah. So LA is still a developing city, which mm-hmm. is the history of this was kind of mind bending. So when he first talks about the war, you know, it's like, oh, it's 1970s. I'm thinking Vietnam. Vietnam. And that's then, what I thought, too. Yeah. And I was like, well, no, he's too old for that. Korea? Oh, my God. Yeah, it's, it's World, World War, War II. II. And then he starts talking about the pilots. He starts talking about Germans. He starts talking about, yeah. And it was it was fascinating. Yeah. I wasn't expecting that. And Jennifer probably knows this, but I have an anti-World War II thing right now for the last couple of years. I just can't read any more World War II books. <laughs> I read too many of them. I feel like it's an easy place for authors to go because it was so obvious the good guys versus the bad guys. And so the other wars, the Korean War, the Vietnam War, where there was atrocities and where we're not as blameless. I, I feel like those stories aren't being told in the same way. Whatever. That's a tangent. But I'm glad I didn't know that he was a World War II pilot before mm. I started this, because I know that would have colored. I would have been, oh, my God, another World War II book. But it's not. It's obviously not a World War II book. But he, he is. He's a he's a pilot veteran from World War II. And that, I thought, was just really interesting, because that war was very clear about the good guys and the bad guys. And now Leland is living in this world where it's not as clear cut. The cops are supposed to be the good guys, but they're not listening to him. The terrorists are supposed to be the bad guys, but he sympathizes with them because you know, when you're trying to overthrow the people who are trying to overthrow your government and the, you know, the U S is kind of the bad guy here. So the shades of gray. Yes. It's fascinating. a very gray novel. And I will say I didn't enjoy the novel as much as the movie because he has so many digressions. I'm just like, Oh, come on, let's get back to the story. The drinking game for this book would have been every time there's the <laughs> flashback <laughs> drink and then die from alcohol poisoning. But I will say just from a thematic standpoint, I found it much more interesting. Yes. And I feel like it was making a really interesting point about violence being bad. Like this book was about how violence is bad. There's uh, there's a quote 
which I was going to save until later, but I will read it now because I found it so interesting. Oh, it is relevant. It is. Okay. So it's towards the end when he's done a bunch of killing. It's right after Stephanie has died. Something in us always wanted to die. No forgiveness. Never any forgiveness in life. What did it say of a man if he outlived all the women who had ever loved him? A man like him with a gun in his hand. What did a gun mean except death? I just thought such a, yeah, there's so really, self-awareness moments there. There's some really there. good lines in there. Yeah. and you know, So there's some thought that went into and this. And that definitely was different from the movie. The movie was the classic action hero movie. Very it kind of set the tone for action movie heroes. You know, it's the gold standard for a lot of people of action movies. You do have the everyman, but it is very black and white. Very, those are the bad guys. These are the good guys. The good guy's going to win, which is why every year I like to watch it around Christmas, because it is comforting to kind of have that be over simplistic and to be you know like this is this is obviously good and this is obviously bad and i know exactly who to root for but this is actually kind of a digression from like the standard 80s film so if you think of like schwarzenegger films and stallone films you know you still have that black and white but you have this character that is superhuman Mm-hmm. And John McLean, he is not a superhuman. Mm-mm. He is an average guy just sort of thrown into the situation. He did. He's an average guy in the way that Hollywood makes average guys who can still cling to elevator shafts by the tips of their fingers. And, <laughs> you know, well, you not know, have Leland, <laughs> Leland is the perfect person to be put in this situation. He's got the history. He's mm-hmm. got the knowledge. He studies terrorism. This is his yeah. job. And so if you were going to have the perfect person to be put in this situation, it would be Leland. Whereas McLean, he's just kind of thrown in there. It's yeah. like, do what you can, dude. He just is in the wrong place at the wrong time kind of a thing. And and I feel like Leland did better in it, even though the femme fatale, the girl dies. Mm-hmm. Stephanie dies. Holly doesn't die. Although I think that there's a reason Holly didn't die, which I'll touch on in a second. But so Leland doesn't do better in terms of that, but he saves the hostages in, in a different, you know, even though some of them are killed. But he does better at his own survival. He wraps his feet in towels. Like, John McClane yeah. never wraps his feet. And John McClane tries on the first pair of shoes of the guy he kills. But after that, no. There's no more trying on shoes. Like, he kind of just gives up on well, that. He never thought. tried to do that. Well, well, because he started killing women. It was the men he killed early. It, and, and the one guy went out the window. The other guy went out the window. Well, if you look at the guy whose neck he broke, that yeah, was the could, first he one. He could have McLean. done it there. And he, he decided he's not to. Shock. Yeah, he's in shock and it's disgusting and all of this stuff. And then the other guy, he shoots out of a window. And then there's a bunch of women, which is a difference also. A yeah. big difference. This gang... Also, there's two differences. There's like they, half of them are women. Half of them are women. And, and Leland calls them a gang. He calls them a gang. He doesn't see them as terrorists. He doesn't see them as black-hatted. You know, he, it's a gang. It's just, it's simple. That's what they are. They're doing a bad thing, and so I'm fighting against them. And so, I thought that that was interesting, that his word choice. And then, yes, there are women there, and that was fascinating. But he also recognizes that they're very professional what they're doing. They know what they're doing. They're organized. Mm-hmm. So, that's one of the reasons why at the end of the novel, if he had done nothing, probably everyone would have survived. Mm-hmm. Because they didn't want to kill the people. That wasn't all that they wanted to do was to get the wealth out and redistribute the wealth. Yeah. Which is interesting because they were Robin Hood. In the movie, I think Hans Gruber calls John Wayne, or John Wayne, (laughs) John McClane Robin Hood at one point, and and it doesn't, you know, quite work. But, and, and, and because of the women in the book, it's amazing to me that this 1979 book was so much less sexist than the 1988 movie because, you know, Stephanie wasn't just a one dimensional girl who has to be rescued. She's kind of, she's gray. You know, she's got mm-hmm. that gray area. You have Kathy, the flight attendant, which is, I'm not really, I guess she was there to, to humanize him. I think she was there to be like the foil for the future idea, past, present, future, ghosts of Christmas past, etc. But you have women in this gang who are, you know, pretty brutal and pretty awesome. You know, they're doing their job. They're there. They're the freedom fighters. But- it's really easy to understand why they took that out of the film because it is hard to watch women being killed. Oh yeah, and the way he does it, especially yeah. towards the, the end, the last, last well, the last two, the one he's there's a big old fight and he's punching her and she's biting him and he shoots her in the eye. I mean, it is vicious. But and the last, the one. last one is cold and calculating, and he lures her down and then he shoots her very professionally and calls her a bitch. 
But she was also willing to be a hostage. She she mm-hmm. put down her gun. She was working with him. And it's like, okay, you win. Right. So she was not aggressive at all. It was not a self-defense move at no. all. It was straight up fucking murder. It is. And he calls her a bitch. Like, he has sunk that low. And he's aware. I think he knows that he's gone to this bad place. And he's going to just be there until it's done. Like, well, he makes that conscious decision. This is after his daughter dies. Yes. So he is in that state of shock. And he's that's something that's played up much more in the book, which I like because you don't ever see that in action films. You don't see a character having to go through these reactions. Mm-hmm. The most you get from McLean is when they shoot a, oh, is it Taki Tagaki? Oh, Tagaki. Thank you. Yes. So when they shoot Tagaki, he reacts. He's very much a normal human in that moment. Yeah. It's also really uh, graphic when when he is shot in in the head and there's like blood all over the glass conference and you know, um, <laughs> yeah, but okay, and I will say also, you know, not only is it hard to watch women being killed, we don't do that in action movies, but we we have to have the guy, he, we have to win in action movies. The good guy has to win, right? So John McClane's going to have to rescue Holly, and like suddenly their marriage problems are going to go away. I found it really interesting that the Rolex at the beginning of the movie is her, is the symbol, herself. it's the symbol of yeah. gift to herself for her being professional and her like being a career woman and making it on her own, gift to herself. The way he saves her at the end is by freaking unclipping it so that he can rescue her. Well, this is a major difference. And this has a lot of thematic play. So in the book, Stephanie is living this high life and he's looking at her as somebody who's into excess. She doesn't get that she's sleeping with like these douchebags all the time. And she's making all these really poor decisions. And yeah, he's Mr. Judgy McJudgy. But this was a gift to herself. In the movie... This was Ellis kind of flirting with her, making a play. It was a gift. Mm-hmm. This is more thematic that their marriage is going to be okay. Because he's getting rid of that claim that Ellis had on her. Right. Well, he's getting rid of, yes, and, and, and saving her from... And speaking of feminism, it's kind of interesting when you look at Stephanie. Because she is doing almost all of the work. She is the power horse here. And yet, she might not even get the same bonuses as the men. Right. Yeah. And yeah. that's kind of a little nod and recognition to the state of feminism at the time that you have this really awesome person who's still undervalued. Right. There was a um, a review I read online which talked about how the whole movie was basically all about penises, the whole building of the penis. <laughs> and, um, you know, like the explosion, like basically it's like this orgasmic explosion at the end and the men are trying to dominate the penis and you know the women are it was it was fascinating sometimes it was a fun, the cigar is just a cigar. it was a fun read though um <laughs> but i yeah anyways some well, of the- i will say there is a lot of repressed masculinity in the movie that is let out yes so you have mclean he's you know kind of your standard guy whose wife is leaving him he's feeling a little down about the world he's afraid to fly yeah and then through violence you know, this is, yay, I'm having masculine he power. And he asserts to, himself. And this goes into the trope that a woman is a trophy. Oh, yeah. Uh, he rescued his wife, Holly. He gets her at the end. That's his trophy. But I will say, Holly is pretty complex in the movie. She has a brain. She's very capable. Which is why I found it a little disappointing that it was wrapped up so cleanly with her. And they're just mm. going to kiss and then get in the car and off they go, you know? But um, I thought that relationship had a lot more dynamic interest than it did in the book between him and his daughter. Yeah. Well, and a, a torn up marriage is an easier fix and also maybe more accessible for mainstream audiences than the very uncomfortable idea of raising a child who then does things you don't approve of. Yeah. But yeah, John was... It's, Super hyper masculinity yeah. with his, uh, you know, there's a bunch of homophobic slurs, his like LA, well, you know, California. He's so the New York, so much of that. So there are a few nods in the movie to the book. And one of them is when he's getting off the plane and the stewardess kind of gives him a little eye. And he walks away. He's a gentleman about it, but uh, he looks Kathy. Well, yeah, but um, what was it? Kathy? And he he checks out the girl in the white pants. Oh yeah, but Kathy, I checked out the girl in the white pants. Is the stewardess too. that they kiss? They're supposed to have this big relationship that's yeah. coming up, but it was so forced. It was. They have one conversation, and all of a sudden, I have to talk to Kathy to get me through this. And yeah, it was, which I think spoke to loneliness, which I really felt was a theme in the book. Like he didn't have anybody else to call. He called the the stewardess the flight attendant that he had just met it was full of potential that's the future thing again the standing in for the future goes to the future but but also he didn't have anybody else to call like he had his buddy but he didn't want to talk to his buddy that's the past 
right? He ha- okay, so there is, uh, um, to the homophobia, when in the book he gets into the office, he calls her a stewardess instead of a flight attendant because he wants to make it clear he was talking to a woman. Yes. And so there is, <laughs> that's why I thought, okay, this is a little nod. And when there's a guy who comes up to Bruce Willis and tries to give him a kiss and Bruce Willis goes, oh, okay, yeah. I'm not California. Cal- yeah. 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 Uh, but that was very much Leland. He was all about, okay, California is so weird. And oh my goodness, he's Californians. They sit on the beach. Yes. Like freaks. I don't know why that was such a weird thing. Like what else do you do on a beach? <laughs> <laughs> I make sandcastles. So there. Okay. You okay. make sandcastles. Not really. You're a better person than sandcastles, I am. Sandcastles. I go swimming. <laughs> not, oh, not in California. Oh, I do. I go Okay. Pro. So one of the other big changes is the difference between the Japanese company versus the oil company. And I thought this was interesting. The politics over money, the points made and about Chile. So a lot of 1980s anti-Japanese feeling. Exactly. So it made sense that those were the bad guys. The point of view changed drastically in the book. We are only with Leland. We are Leland 24. Mm-hmm. We, are, we are almost too much Leland because we are in Leland's past and Leland's past and Le- more of Leland's past. In the movie, and, and this makes sense, from a cinematic point of view, it, it just makes for a better showing. We get the point of view of the of the bad guys and we get Alan Rickman and we it, it's just, it's so great and it's so fun. And I like that the audience kind of knows more than John McClane as it goes forward. Not, not ultimately more because, you know, we don't know about the double cross until it's really explained to us. But we are seeing the smooth way that they take the building at first and they're setting that up and um, we almost have a hero shot when they all get off the out of the van and then the camera lingers with Alan Rickman. We know he's the guy to watch. He's very much an anti-hero. Oh. He's intelligent and very witty and I, I love that in a villain. Yeah. Yeah. So fun to watch. Yeah. But this is what I thought was interesting is in the book, it's totally Leland's perspective. I thought it worked very well because you are having to figure out this puzzle with him. Mm-hmm. And when he's, you know, being the mouse that's being chased, you're with him the entire way. You're trying to go, okay, how do we figure out this? How do we, you know, navigate this very strange building? And the first time you get away from McLean is when you have the terrorists coming up. Mm-hmm. And it reminded me a lot of this, uh, a Hitchcock quote about suspense. Okay. Let me get to that. There's a distinct difference between suspense and surprise, and yet many pictures continually confuse the two. So how he would explain it is, say you have everybody sitting at a table, and they're having a conversation, all of a sudden a bomb goes Oh, that's off. the bomb under the table thing. Yeah. Okay, okay, go ahead. Yeah, so the bomb goes off. If you don't know that there's a bomb underneath the table, it's just a surprise, and you have no lead up. If you are watching this conversation, knowing there's a bomb under the table, it's a very different feeling. And so the entire time, you're not paying as much attention to the conversation because you're getting that fear, and that's mm-hmm. the suspense. So watching the terrorists come in, adds to suspense. It works much better that way in a movie than it would in a book. Definitely. And and I also like that we were with Leland. I, I never felt like the author was keeping stuff from us. Like I said, maybe almost too much. But Leland, when Leland tapes the gun, that, that same thing at the end with the gun taped to the back and then pulling it out, we knew. We know. He tapes the gun. Like, we, yeah. we know that that's happening. In the movie, there's a shot where John kind of looks over at the tape, but you don't quite put it together. And you really, it does not look like he really has. And then based on where his arms are, I, I don't know how believable it is. Well, whatever. But that is supposed to be a surprise that we didn't know that he had a gun taped to his back when, you know, until the, until it shows us at the very, very end. So yeah, definitely. They, they tried a lot with suspense. I feel like sometimes it was padding for the suspense, but that was that was fine. But I also see a major difference that way between the two characters. Leland is very much a planner. Mm-hmm. When it comes to the hose, you know, he plots this. He calculates everything before it happens. With McLean, it's like, oh no, stuff is happening. Well, here's the hose. I'll, you know, wrap that around me and jump off. Right. And so, just hope for the best. Yeah. So... Yeah. No, Leland was a planner. Again, he wrapped his feet in towels. Like he, you know, he was smart about what he was doing, even though it didn't work out ultimately. I don't know. Maybe there's a lesson there, you know, Blind bravado sometimes I would wins. Hope that if you're <laughs> 70 years old, you are able to understand these things that maybe a young 30 year old wouldn't. Uh, fair enough. Oh okay. my goodness. So, yeah, there's hope for aging. But do you <laughs> like a protagonist who is the thinker, or do you like them that they're more meticulous, or do you like the improvational protagonist, the one who thinks on their feet? I think it depends on if it's straight up entertainment or aspirational. 
Because for me, that's a lot of times it falls into those categories. And so I wouldn't say either one of these guys is aspirational, but John McClane is way more entertainment. This mm. The movie was entertaining. It was, and it still is, you know. I, I feel like the book was deeper and and made me think more. And so I appreciated that in that. I, I You know what? Does that make sense? Oh, yeah. Does that answer your question? I, I definitely want to root for both. It just kind of depends on what their situations are. Yeah, and the movie is definitely going. This is an everyman. We are the everyman is a hero. The cop that we like, Al, he's the everyman, right? And even even more so than uh, than John in some ways. You know, so in the movie there is a hierarchy of assholes. Yes, yes. Okay, you have. Oh my God, so many assholes. You have Dwayne T. Robinson. You have Johnson and Johnson, the FBI's. Of course, you've got the bad guys. They're supposed to be the assholes, but we. I don't know, there's a little part of me, and maybe, you know, I'm going to lose some cred here, but I was kind of rooting for Hans towards the end. I know he's an awful person, and he killed people, but... He's the anti-hero. He's the anti-hero. And then you have, like, even the media guy, and then the other media guy. Like, there's... I, it just... Did you notice that the media guy is also the bad guy in Ghostbusters? No. Yes. Oh. Yeah. I haven't seen Ghostbusters since I was a child. Okay, but he's the asshole me. EPA guy. Oh, okay. Well, there you go. I don't... <laughs> so he just... That's his job, I guess, in Hollywood. But... Holy crap, man. And I, and especially that whole media thing. I was like, why is this here? I, I guess it's because in, in a realistic situation, the media would get involved. Are we making a statement about, because the media showed Holly's kids, then Hans knew who Holly was, like, okay, fine. But he could have found out another way. I mean, it just, I don't, I don't know. It just felt, superfluous, and it totally took away from the screen time of John McClane and and Hans Gruber, and those were the two guys I wanted to watch. I wanted more of them, and less of this random media whatever. So, in the book, there's a lot of this media, especially at the end, because this is a good way, and possibly one of the few ways, that the author can tell a perspective from different sides. Without changing the point of view. Right. Right. And so, there's only certain ways that... McLean is going to be able to get information, so if he gets access to a television. He starts talking to Holly and CB people and yeah, um, Taco Taco Bill, Taco Bill. I I still wanted to face palm at that name. <laughs> <laughs> I tell you what it means, but there's kids listening. <laughs> <laughs> This is the thing. If you look at uh, Takagi, he's more sympathetic than Rivers. Rivers isn't really that bad. He just comes off as smarmy. Takagi is very elegant. The parties are completely different. Very different. In the book, it's a rave. There's cocaine everywhere. With children. Because it's 1979, apparently. I don't know. Yeah, very strange. That surprised me. But I guess it's to put the grandkids there, because then it's more motivation. Yeah, yeah. Um, But yeah, the, the party's much more elegant in the movie. If you look at the background... There's all this castle imagery. There's all this warrior imagery. There's lots of samurai. Uh, the the symbol for the tower is basically a samurai uh, Shield, helmet. Like yeah. That, yeah. So there's a lot of that. And there is some reference that Takagi is not a nice person. That he's got his fingers into some stuff that's not that great. So but we get that. Isn't that mainly from what... <laughs> Alan Rickman, sorry, what Ruber says, you yeah. know, the Takagi Corporation, blah, 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 today they will get an exercise in what real power, you know, the use of real power or something along those lines. And and I, I kind of take that with a grain of sand. He was laying in like, oh, we're just terrorists, you know, look mm. over here at us being evil terrorists while they're really, you know, I'm not a, a, a common thief, I'm an exceptional thief. He's not playing to anybody. He's just uh, kind of talking to his... I feel like he's playing to the hostages because they were... Well, no, you're right, because they were going to blow yeah, them all he, up. Yeah, yeah. and most he would be playing to his terrorist band, but they're already with him. That's true. Okay, so, good yeah. point. I will concede the point. <laughs> Thank you. So you have Takagi. He's an asshole. You have Ellis, who is such a smarmy so asshole. So awful. Yeah, it's it's great when he gets shot in the face, because he's such a just an awful person. Yeah. I'm glad we didn't have to see it, because I don't like watching Blood Splatter, but also it was one of those moments where you're like, yeah, okay, yeah. yeah. I'm not. I'm not overly sad, and especially because he did this stupid thing. Oh yeah, and so a lot John, of this is baby blah blah blah. Oh yeah, <laughs> male posturing. <laughs> so a lot of this is booby. That's what he calls him, John Booby. Oh, I God. know the booby thing. Just what are we? Are we? It, it reminds me of Scaramucci I, I, of all things. Oh my God, <laughs> is it just so smart in New York? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Ew, ew. Yeah. Um, but then if you also look at the professors on the news media, 
You know, they're talking oh, about yeah. Helsinki. Hos- no. <laughs> well, and, and they're talking about, oh, like the... Uh, Helsinki is in Finland. Right. Well, and then victim, hostage, hostage, you know, captor, whatever. And they're like, at this point, the hostages will start to identify totally off base. The hostages yeah. are freaking out. It's looking at people who think they know what's going on. People in positions yes. of power. And that's why John McClane, our every man, is our hero. Right. And that's Al- why Johnson and Johnson are assholes in the, in the, in the helicopter. Like, again, just okay, to prove... Look at this. Um, Robinson comes in and he's the asshole. Right. As soon as Johnson and Johnson comes in, he becomes the smarter person. Right. And then once they're gone, because they die then in he the house, then he turns back into the asshole. And he's not the one who gets punched at the end. It's the media guy. So Holly has something to do at the end to punch the media guy. Did you get that? But, <laughs> yeah. Uh, uh, okay, but speaking of our everyman, we have Al, who has his own road of redemption, which was mm-hmm. not in the book. In the book, we didn't have this whole, I shot a kid, and now I can't draw my a gun. A lot of the side characters got a right. lot more character development. Right, and a so I thought that was interesting. Of course, violence is like his road back in. That's how he redeems himself, is through violence, blah, blah, blah. Fine, whatever. I thought that the Al in the in the book was kind of a non-existent character until the very end, because at the mm-hmm. very end, he still shoots Carl. He's the one who shoots Carl. He also puts Robinson in the way. Yes, he does! And what an calculating yes. he puts Robinson in the way and at this point, Leland is on a stretcher because he can't freaking move. He got carried down the last six flights of stairs or something because he is so beat up and banged up, whatever. Let's not forget how high up they were. Anyways, and so Al pulls his gun. He, you know, he gets Carl. Carl actually kills people before Al even gets him. And, and Leland watches Al's face change and become this dark, evil kind like you know violent person and then flip back and be like oh yes okay, yeah blah, blah, so blah. the dehumanization of violence yes and like how it's a switch that can come on and, and in the on. movie violence is redemptive yes so that okay major themes major differences which is why i found the book interesting and mm-hmm. thought provoking and and i really wish that i had read it before and the movie i just you know like i i love it because it is like this big action and it's big dumb fun and it's very easy and and, and i'm going to say fluffy and you're going to say it's not fluffy but but it is cuz it, it is it's so fluffy and, it, and you don't have to think about it or wonder about it or or anything and so it almost feels unfair to compare them like yes they had the original source material, but my god, the only thing is, because the movie is all about extolling the virtues of the violence, I feel like they missed the point of their source material. I feel like the book was like, violence is bad, and the movie was like, let's blow shit up! (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, but the movie has a a place. It has a place for us. We do sometimes need just that simple black and white. We need a hero to root for. Not everything has to be great morality. There's a place for both of them. There is, and I'm certainly going to still watch this movie every Christmas season because it is a Christmas movie. One thing that got me as I was watching this film that I didn't see as a kid because I didn't know anything as a kid, the exposition in this movie is so perfectly done. Mm-hmm. Like little tiny things and you get so much information. Mm-hmm. So John McLean, he, you know, you see his gun. Oh, don't worry, I'm a cop. Boom, you move on. Mm-hmm. But that gives us so much information about him. You know, oh, Holly- he sits in the front of the cat of the limo. Yeah. Now we know he's the everyman. Yeah, you know, Holly talks to uh, her her maid and the maid says, oh, well, you know, I'll make up an extra room. And you know that they're estranged. Mm-hmm. They he, still he, love each other, but they're still estranged. Right. He gets there, he finds her last name, all of that stuff. You but know, that shows so much more complexity about their relationship and it's a tiny little scene she'd only been there for six months too yeah i thought that was that was yeah yeah but you already got smarmy ellis you know macking on her oh whatever <laughs> holly see, holly saw through ellis she wasn't interested well holly would if holly could uh, <laughs> um but the other thing that bothered me so much oh. in the novel was the racism yeah, the Arabs and the... I kind of felt like that scene from Airplane where there's the old lady who says, Excuse me, stewardess, I speak jive. Oh, yes. <laughs> Don't juice my fruit. It was it was very much a product of the times. In yeah, terms he of that. goes to the airport like, Wow, there's so many black people at this airport. Oh, my God. He has to, t- he has to tell us the ethnicity of everybody. If yeah. this person's black and this person's black and this person... Oh, this and is a young all- black voice without a hint of the ghetto. Like, what the fuck, man? Seriously? Yeah. And they're all in service positions. Of course they are, because it's 1979. And and in the movie, we have Argyle as our limo driver, who does a good thing. We also have a black computer tech guy. I love that. Is yeah. the only one who lives. 
And in the 1980s, that was an unusual character choice. To Seriously. Have a black guy as, like, and also not the person. first one who dies, right? Yes. You know? So he's the only one who lives because Argyle just punches him, but he can't have black and black crime. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> But, okay, but since we're talking about crime, I wondered if you thought that either of these have a message about the good guy with the gun idea. And and maybe that's too present day, but I feel like we have a gun culture and we talk mm. a lot about guns and action movies, um, any kind of pop culture stuff is both a mirror to society and also is kind of sometimes in some ways aspirational about society, right? It shows us examples. And so when we have these big action movies where the good guy with the gun is doing this and doing that, we have a mentality that if I had a gun, I could have saved these people. Like, do we have the good guy with the gun mentality now because the men that are around our age or maybe 20 years older saw movies with the people like John McClane and are like, yeah, he's the everyman. I'm an everyman. And I could have also rescued people. What do you think? As I was watching this film, this is a little bit of a digression. I was thinking about uh, 24. I didn't watch the series, but you know, I know of it. What really bothered me is 24 was used as an excuse to allow torture. And 24, this is fiction. There is nothing about this that has anything really to do with reality other than, yes, terrorism exists. But it's a complete fiction, and we did horrible things as a country because of it. So, yeah, films like this glorify the guy with the gun. If you're the guy with the gun, you can do everything. I, I've kind of gotten into this debate when it comes to books. You know, I like books with action. I like, you know, when the character with the sword chops somebody up. You know, that's fun. That's and <laughs> You heard it here first, folks. Jennifer likes chopping people up with swords. I do. In fiction. <laughs> okay. But it's a distinction, you know, that people don't distinguish this is what fiction is. That's not reality. In reality, I don't want people chopping up each other with swords. So unfortunately, what the message is and what people take from it are two completely different things. If you look at South Park, Cartman is a bad character. He's racist, and this is a bad thing. But because he's such a charismatic character, this allows people to think, you know, racism is okay, or you use those kind of... At the very least, it's funny and, you know, shock value. And And it allows people to say stuff that they would not normally say. And encourages it. Yeah. I would say. Mm -hmm. So, yeah, absolutely. You know, Americans, we love our violence. Um, the other thing that kind of surprised me with this film was the amount of female nudity, because I didn't remember that from when I was a kid. Right. You know, there's the picture, there's, you know, the girl and the guy, and they were in a... In Mid-coital. A yeah. <laughs> we get to see lots of boobs. Yeah. Well, I mean, her boobs as they bounce off screen. Yeah. Yeah, there's the sexy girl in the window, and there's absolutely nothing to do with that scene. There's no purpose to it other than, oh, hey, look, there's a girl yeah. in the window. Earn our R rating. <laughs> So what is the point of that? But how much do we allow violence and how repressed are we when it comes to issues of sex? So yes, absolutely. I think this contributes to gun culture. However, I don't want my violent video games taken away. (laughs) Okay, fair enough. I did think it was interesting the difference between the intentional killing um, versus the accidental killing and the self-defense and when each of those characters made the switch from one to the other. Okay, Jennifer just picked up the cat and flipped it upside down, so now you're distracting me. Well, yeah, but the cat is totally okay. The cat is okay. Yeah. So what do you think, Kat, about this intentional killing versus um, self-defense killing? That was, I think, one of the most interesting ones for me is the first one, because Leland has to think about it, and he deliberately kills this person. McLean, it was an accident. They Mm -hmm. fell down the stairs, and the guy just had his neck, you know, crack. Right. Which... And then at the end, when he's talking to Carl about it, he's taunting him. He's saying, your brother squealed. No, he didn't. You even killed him by accident. So yeah. now we're going to, like, revisionist history make your, you know. Well, he was just goading I know him, he was but... goading him, but oh, my God. But the I, funny thing was. Ugh, I'm going to kill you McLean and clean you. is a reluctant hero. Fuck. He doesn't want to be violent when he talks to the cops. He's like, oh, you guys are going to take care of stuff? Cool. I'll just, like, hang out. Right. Leland doesn't. Leland's like, no, I'm going to get people. Yeah. I know I'm going to mess up their plans. And yeah, that was was different motivations. Very different reaction for the protagonist considering the violence. So even though Leland is much more violent, the message is anti violence. Yeah. Definitely. And, and both, and, you know, even in the, in the book, Joe isn't just the, yeah, Joe, Joe isn't the everyman in the, in the same way that John is. He is educated. He quotes Frost. He has all of these, 
these very profound mm. thoughts about the world. You know, he's been around. He is wise, almost, even though he's trapped now in this really bad situation. And I, I thought that was interesting. I would never have said, oh, Joe's the everyman. He's not. He's a highly trained guy who's doing, yeah. like you said, he's the perfect person to be in this situation, even though it just really doesn't work out well for anybody. Yeah, he flies planes. He owns planes. He flies first class. He's, he's definitely on the elite side of things. Which, you know, if you go back to Gruber... Gruber's an intelligent person in the in both of these. Mm-hmm. They're both thinkers. They're both you know people who figure stuff out. Mm-hmm. So it makes for a fantastic foil. Yeah, I think we've lost that in a lot of modern films where the bad guy is just this idiot. But having an intelligent foil is so much more interesting, but harder to write. I really do think that the point was lost in the movie. That violence is bad. Violence dehumanizes us. Corruption and greed are bad things. The world's full of bad things and bad people doing bad things. But violence isn't the answer. Because in the movie, we get the classic action movie thing. It might be gritty and realistic, but it's actually really cartoony. You know, falling down the elevator shaft, swinging out on a hose and whatever. It's kind of oversimplistic. And the violence is actually celebrated. And then at the very end, John gets Holly and he doesn't even have to get in an ambulance. Like... What the fuck, man? I saw your feet. Well, not only that. I mean, <laughs> after this, do you think they would, the cops would just let him go away? Seriously? Like, no, that's, that's so confusing. Uh, oh, whatever. No, that's very cowboy. We're rocking on. We're yeah, riding our horse off into the sunset. Except right. it's the limo driver. I want to read another quote from the book. Hold on, I gotta find it. Okay, um, another quote that I really thought was really interesting. There's two. There's one about heroes and villains, and one about right and wrong. And I thought that these made a lot of sense in terms of the message of the book. People would recoil in horror if they saw who they were rooting for now, because now he's all bloody and messed up. The difference between heroes and villains was only a matter of time anyway. I thought that was really telling because, again, he's, he's, there's that gray area. The difference between heroes and villains is just a matter of time. Well, it's also interesting when you talk about World War II as being a very simple black and white, but you know, we are the villains on the other side. Are we the baddies? We can be. <laughs> well, we definitely you know, we are the baddies when the, it comes to, to what was going on to Chile. Yeah. Yeah. Um, another quote. The question of who was right and who was wrong was more a matter of point of view than anything else. Exactly. If you were in a helicopter, you might just pull the trigger because your the money was out of reach and you wouldn't even know why you had done it. Yeah, I just, yeah, exactly. So I thought the book had a lot to say. And well, he's also dealing with a lot of guilt. When I looked up the detective online, it's 600 pages. So and- tell, tell our listeners what the detective is. Okay, so Die Hard, or Nothing Lasts Forever, is actually a sequel. The first one is The Detective. It was made into a movie with Frank Sinatra. And from what I gather, I have not read this, it's 600 pages and most of it has to do with failing relationships and lots and lots of conversation about his failing relationship with his wife. Karen! Yes. And Karen, um, she dies of cancer and he is kind of tortured by this in the book. Yep. Yeah. There's some callbacks early on that it it's basically this is what happened in the detective uh, series is he had somebody that he arrested and it turned out that this person was innocent of murder, but he had already been put on death row and killed. Mm -hmm. And so he has a huge struggle about that. And his wife says, well, you know, there was a prosecutor, there was a jury, there was a judge. You were not the only person who was involved with this. But he still takes it as, you know, his failing as a cop. When I told people that we were doing this book for Christmas... Hmm. Is this a Christmas film? Is this a Christmas film? And I say yes. Okay, so my this is this is for you, Clemencia, because she is just no, it is not a Christmas movie, <laughs> blah blah blah. So this is for you as well as anybody else who disagrees with me and Jennifer, because we both think this is a Christmas movie. There is a rubric. How do you decide if a movie is a Christmas movie? Okay, I think that there are five things, and I'm getting this mostly from Nerdist, so it's not just me. But how much of it takes place on or around Christmas? All of it. Would it be fundamentally different if not placed on or near Christmas? Yes. Are any of the major themes Christmassy? Sort of. The going home for the holidays, family togetherness, the journey, greed is bad, redemption and friendship and love save the day. Yes, totally. Okay. Does watching it at Christmas make it better? Yes. <laughs> it did come out in July, but I will give it's you the yes. It's a summer movie because all action films come yes. out in the summer, but it's okay. still a Christmas movie. And lastly, is watching it around the holidays a tradition? To some people, yes. To some people, yes. And we are some of those people. So this movie is indeed 
a Christmas movie. Yes. So, bite well, me, Clemencia. No. All right. So, would the plot be fundamentally different if it weren't on Christmas? And it would be. The whole reason why the cops aren't around is because it's Christmas. And so, a lot right. of them are home with their families. They have the skeletons. like The, the skeleton, skeleton crew. It could have been New Year's Eve. Yeah. To be fair. But New Year's is actually a lot of cops are on the job exactly. because of alcohol. Right, exactly. Well, and they would have been busy. They would have been yeah. diverted other places and stuff. They technically, maybe you could have said it's a New Year's Eve party, blah, blah, blah. But no, man, it was Christmas. It needed to be Christmas. Yeah, because and, New Year's... And then we get our ho-ho-ho. cops in the street during New Year's Eve because of all the parties and drinking and whatnot. So there's a lot going on New Year's Eve. Christmas tends to be a lot calmer. Um, yes, well, you don't, you don't do violence on Christmas. That's just wrong. Well, maybe in your family. <laughs> okay. Anyway. So, yes, there's a reason why there aren't any cops around. There's a reason why, you know, the, the media isn't picking up on this very quickly until it becomes a thing and then they have to call everybody in. Um, right. They're having a party because it's Christmas. Right. Yeah. Yep. So it is fundamentally there. And it's referred to constantly. You know, there's the ho-ho-ho on the dead body. He wraps the tape. It's a season greetings tape. Mm-hmm. You know, there's yeah. Santa Claus is everywhere. There's just so much. Um, and everybody gets split very evenly into the naughty and the nice. Yeah. <laughs> is, is John McLean a Christ-like figure or a Santa figure? Hmm. I'm going to go Christ-like <laughs> Maybe Santa is a Christ-like figure. No, I'm just kidding. Okay. No, but he is a Christ-like figure because he dies, comes back, blah, blah. They always think he's dead and he's not because, of course, it's hard to, to make him die. I, I tried. Because it's... Cause yeah. It's, yeah. <laughs> um, <laughs> but... You, know, you tried. <laughs> that's try hard. <laughs> okay, so final, final thoughts about our... Movie and book combo, Jennifer. Well, let's answer the questions. We've talked about the interpretations and how they're the same and how they're different. Last thoughts. Is it worthwhile? Is it worthwhile? Is the book worth our time? Is the movie worth our time? I would definitely say the book is worth your time to read. Even though I struggled with parts of it, I was just like, oh, come on, let's go on. We don't need to know about, you know, every single person in your life or every single flashback you have. But it was still so interesting because it's much more complicated. And I also say the movie's worth your time because it is sometimes you just need cotton candy fun you know it's nice to have a hero it's nice to have some black and white morality where you can go okay this is what's right and this is what's wrong instead of just having to struggle with everything's gray and everything's cynical and it sucks and it's always ugly i i would agree sometimes you just need a win yeah and the the movie gives us a, an easy win it's entertaining the music is great the Ode to Joy. The, the, they the, have four different versions of Ode, Ode to, to Joy. Joy. It's it's phenomenal. The movie is just, it's just big dumb fun. But it's very well done. It's very well done. So big I know it's, fun. it's, it's cotton <laughs> candy, but the editing is fantastic. The adaptation is extremely well done. Yes. And it makes me, more than almost anything that we've seen so far, it makes me wonder about their choices. You know, they took this book, of all books, and completely revised the tone and made it happy and fun. And right. we have these different characters. I think the relationship between McLean and Holly is much more interesting. I, I think that it kept some of the themes that were would work well with the audience of the mm-hmm. time. The, the, you know, the system, bucking the system, all, you know, the bad guys, etc. But I, I feel like the movie is, is simple. It's, it's fine. It's fun. It is what it is. It doesn't pretend or aspire to be more than what it is. The book is well written. I mm-hmm. think it's fascinating. I think it is dark and gray and gritty and interesting. And it left me with thoughts to ponder. And there were definitely some quotes that I liked. And I enjoyed it way more than I thought I would. I will have to tell you, like the first five pages where he's in the road braid incident and he pulls out his gun and threatens. And I was like, oh, you suck. But then by the end, I was like, oh my God, I feel for you you and there you are on a stretcher and you know you have you have grown as a character and so and this is something we didn't mention um there is quite a bit of gray area at the end as well does he live or not because his wounds were very severe yeah again and he so had to get carried down and at the yeah, end he's going to think about flying you yeah, know which so is, is often a often a thing of souls leaving bodies flying floating away etc yeah. in literature that's a common thing so yeah and no, that's I kind of harkening back to when things were simple for him mm-hmm. that's one of the things he loved was flying right uh, so poetic <laughs> Anyways, so yes, I would say they're both well worth your time. But if you're, you know, it's kind of like the source material is apples and there's an apple pie and an apple cobbler. And if you're up for an apple pie, then 
eat the apple pie, don't eat apple cobbler and be disappointed. And if you want apple cobbler, then the reverse is true. Don't eat apple pie because you'll be sad. Okay. There you go. There you go. Eat your pie. Eat your pie. Pages and Popcorn Podcast was brought to you today by apples and coffee. (laughs) Mostly coffee. And a cat. And a cat. (laughs) Uh, Follow us on our social media platforms. Email us at pagesandpopcornpodcast at gmail.com. Check out our blog at pagesandpopcornpodcast.com for information about our next title. And be sure to rate and review us on all of the platforms where we are available. Thank you for listening. And have a very happy... Merry Christmas. Yes. (laughs) I was going to say happy holidays. Oh, oh, oh.